0: Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, senior pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Psalm 23. We're finishing up this uh, five-part series we've been doing in the book of Psalms called You, Not Me, The Heart of Worship. Um, Psalm 23 is one you're well familiar with, uh, one of King David's most famous, most beloved psalms. Uh, We go to it in times of trial and uncertainty. Uh, Countless believers throughout history have been comforted by its words. But Psalm chapter 23, Psalm 23, I'm going more slowly now because I still hear pages rustling. (laughs) I don't have an anecdote, some funny story to insert here to give you extra time, so I'm just speaking slowly. All right, Psalm 23, if you would, uh, read along with me. Beginning in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Now, if you're a student of history, you might recall how in the throes of World War II with the fate of humanity on the line, the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, stood up and addressed the House of Commons. His task? was a difficult one. He needed to provide his people with hope in the face of the seemingly unstoppable German war machine. But at the same time, he had to be honest. The English people knew what was happening on the continent of Europe. And so, on January 22nd, 1941, Churchill stood before the gathered government officials and he declared, Far be it from me to paint a rosy picture of the future. Indeed, I do not think we should be justified in using any but the most somber tones and colors while our people, our empire, and indeed the whole English-speaking world are passing through a dark and deadly valley. But I should be failing in my duty if on the otherwise I were not to convey the true impression that a great nation is getting into its war stride. See, Churchill tackled the challenge of instilling hope in his people while at the same time being honest with them about their dark, difficult, and deadly valley there in World War II. Now, here's the big question for you this morning When have you felt like you've been walking through a dark, difficult, deadly valley and to what or to whom did you turn for for hope for for peace for rest well today we turn to the 23rd psalm to instill some hope there we find three marks of the good shepherd's care the good shepherd's rest that david wrote about here in the 23rd psalm and really the big idea behind psalm 23 is pretty simple it's this that god provides for his people God guides his people, and God loves his people, even in life's darkest valleys. So here in Psalm 23, David is showing us three marks of the good shepherd's care, and here's the first one I want you to get this morning. I want you to notice the provision of the good shepherd. The provision of the good shepherd. Verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. Verse two, he lets me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters. All right, so there's four things here that we discover about the Good Shepherd's provision. First to David, but also by extension to us. The first one is this, that the Lord's provision is powerful. Why? Well, I mean... You know, look at who it comes from. Of the many different names that we have for God, David used the covenant name, the Lord. Now, anytime you see L-O-R-D, all in capital letters in the scriptures, that's actually a reference to the name Yahweh. And that's the, the, the name that he uses to open this Psalm. That's the personal name that God revealed to Moses. Uh, Exodus chapter three, verse 14. You remember the, uh, the burning bush incident. So the name Yahweh, it means the self-existent one, the, the great I am. It is the ultimate statement of, of self-sufficiency, of self-existence and immediate presence. And it's this holy name that David connects with the good shepherd, the one who gives life and breath to all humanity, the one who created everything, the one who parted the waters of the Red Seas for his people to cross on dry ground. This is the one who provides for his sheep. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God provides for every need his people have. So the Lord's provision is powerful just because of who he is. But the Lord's provision is also personal. You see, David could have chosen any number of metaphors to describe God. He could have used a war metaphor, warrior, king, sword and shield. Any of those would have been fitting and have been used elsewhere to describe God. But instead, David opted for a personal metaphor, shepherd. And his use of the word my enhances uh, that. God wasn't just any shepherd. He was David's shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, having been a shepherd himself prior to becoming a warrior and eventually becoming king, David was well acquainted with a shepherd's responsibilities, all of his expectations. David knew how difficult sheep were to lead and that their sole chance of survival rested on the ability of their shepherd. He understood that shepherds would have to watch over their sheep up to 24 hours a day. And so he chose this metaphor of the shepherd because it communicates a personal God, a personal God who cares deeply about his people. And so the good shepherd is not some cold, far off, detached observer. He is an up close and personal Protector of those who belong to Him. But ponder this for a sec. How should the fact that God's provision for us be being personal, how should that affect the way we view our own circumstances? Well, I, I think God's provision being personal, it tells us a few things. It tells us that God knows us. And since he knows us, he knows what we need in life, and he knows what we don't need. It tells us that we can trust that our circumstances, no matter how pleasant on one hand or how dire on the other, are tailor-made for God's glory and our good. You're you're thinking, wait, what? Tailor-made? Even the bad stuff, tailor-made? Well, yeah. Actually, we'll unpack that thought a little bit later on in the message. But it also tells us that finding ourselves in a situation of need ought to drive us to God and not away from Him. Not with our complaints, but with prayers for for His provision for us, for our contentment in Him. And so the Lord's provision is powerful. The Lord's provision is personal. But get this, the Lord's provision is plentiful because the lord is his shepherd the psalmist can declare i have what i need you know in that dry climate of the middle east sheep were very dependent upon the shepherd to find food water protection for them and so every day the shepherd would lead the flock to new Green pastures, which provided enough grass for the day. And that phrase, he makes me lie down, really is an indicator that the sheep had had enough to eat. And of course, the sheep also needed access to quiet waters, which the shepherd faithfully provided. But you see, like those sheep, you and I are dependent on God for our own needs now all our wants no that's a whole other uh, conversation you know contrary to the the word of faith uh name it claim it crowd uh you know just because you want a pink cadillac convertible does not mean that god is somehow obligated to give you one no matter how great your faith is so yes he doesn't give us all of our wants, but he does promise to provide all of our needs. David addressed this in Psalm 37, 25. I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. Paul said in Philippians 4:19, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6, he tells us not to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. So because the Lord is our shepherd, we have what we need. The Lord's provision is powerful, it's personal, it's plentiful. The Lord's provision is purposeful. See, sheep have a reputation for being helpless and needing someone to to lead them and and to feed them. They're inherently timid and uh, oftentimes are afraid to, to lie down, even for their own good. But in a rare moment of confidence and trust in their shepherd, sheep will, in fact, lie down when they think they're free from danger or or from fear. Well, David's confidence was in the good shepherd. He was convinced that the Lord was providing exactly what he needed for his own good. But here's a question for you, church. If the Lord's provision is so personal and so purposeful then why do we find it so stinking difficult to just rest in the Lord's provision? I think sometimes it's because we don't have a teachable spirit. We have not allowed ourselves to be trained by his provision for us in in the past to give us faith and confidence in the present. You know, maybe it's because we struggle to trust anyone with our needs. And so we have very little faith that, that God's actually going to take care of us. Maybe because God doesn't always respond in the timing or in the manner that we prefer. Well, that's not what I asked for, God. Well, again, you know, God gives us what we need, He doesn't always give us what we want. Our contentment in the Lord actually begins with a confidence in the Lord, a confidence in His promised provision. If He says He'll provide, He's going to provide. All that we need, He gives. And what He gives, He gives for a purpose so that we would receive the Lord's provision with joy, celebration, thankfulness, awe, You remember how we defined worship in week one of this series? Recognizing God for who he is and responding appropriately with a demonstration of celebration, thankfulness, joy, or awe. All right, so, so far in these first couple of verses, we've seen the provision of the good shepherd. Let's shift gears. Let's talk for a few moments about the prompting of the good shepherd. Look at verse 3. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, It says in verse 3 that he leads us along the right paths. There's several characteristics of the right path we're going to explore and and even some of the wrong ones. But the first thing we notice is that the right path is the rejuvenated path. What do I mean by rejuvenated? He renews my life. Now, some of your English translations are going to say he restores my soul. The reason that that phrase there in Psalm 23 is subject to different translation, it's it's actually fairly simple. When you're dealing with words in biblical languages, they all have a certain semantic range. When you're translating from Hebrew or Greek to English, there's not always a one-to-one correlation. A Bible word may actually correspond to half a dozen different things. And so the key to understanding how that needs to be translated in a particular verse is seeing how it's used in context. Well, since in addition to that word meaning soul, that Hebrew, uh, Hebrew word nephesh can also be translated life. I mean, this could very well indicate that the Lord restores David to physical health. But either translation, either or both, can certainly be true of the Good Shepherd. So, he renews my life, or he restores my soul. Now, in his commentary on Psalm 23, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, When the soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it is sinful, he sanctifies it. When it is weak, he strengthens it a rejuvenated life as we learn to rest in him. So the Good Shepherd's path rejuvenates. But you know what? Following God on the paths of righteousness also means that we have to be very wary of what I would call the detrimental path. The detrimental path. Countless wrong paths exist in this life. I mean, we've seen people Even ourselves at times fall prey to some of these things. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, broad is the path that leads to to death and destruction. But these detrimental paths could look like a number of different things. They could be paths of selfishness paths focused on recognition or garnering influence with people or or even the pursuit of material gain uh, that could be paths for sexual fulfillment apart from God's design for human sexuality, paths of bitterness, hate, paths of fear. You know, David spoke of the danger in the dark valley, you know for us living in america it might not actually be physical danger that we fear a swedish businesswoman by the name of uh, maria stenvinkel once wrote you've probably experienced it that paralyzing state hindering you from moving forward or that constant worry running over and over in your mind we all battle with fear fear of failing looking like fools or not being loved enough for who we are, fear of not being good enough, smart enough, or courageous enough. No one, no matter gender, age, skin color, social status, or nationality, gets a free pass when it comes to fear. One way to move past your fears is knowing you're not alone. See, for David, even in the darkest valley, he had nothing to fear. Now, how can he say that? Five simple words that virtually leap off the page. For you are with me. For you are with me. Because the Lord was with him as a shepherd with his rod and his staff in hand. Providing David with comfort and boldness, even on the dark path. Now, let's explore that thought for just a moment. Let's, let's personalize it. Do you feel like you're in a dark valley? If that's you today, I, I want you to notice another aspect of the, the Good Shepherd's guidance, okay? That's what I call the protected path the protected path. Look at the end of verse 4. Your rod comforts me. Now, since the Psalms are a form of Hebrew poetry, they're filled with with all sorts of imagery, figurative language and such. And here, the rod is a symbol. Now, first of all, it's a symbol of strength and, and safety, but the rod also represents God's power. You know, shepherds are often thought of as being very kind and, and gentle and, and, and tending their flocks in peaceful pastures. But you know, the shepherd also had to protect his flock from wild animals and, and other dangers. And while the shepherd's rod was made of wood, it was often, often capped with uh, iron for the killing of predatory beasts. So what you and I are being told here in the 23rd Psalm is that our shepherd wields protective power. I mean, who knows what dangers God has already protected us from without us even knowing. Folks, that ought to be comforting to us. Now, in addition to the protected path, I also want you to notice the grace-filled path the grace-filled path. Your staff comforts me. Now, the shepherd's staff had a crook on the end of it and was often used to pull sheep out of hazardous situations like thickets or, or crevices. And the, the poetic imagery here is pretty beautiful because it's really a picture of God's grace. I mean, think about this we often find ourselves in hazardous situations. In fact, they're usually situations resulting from our own sin. But what is it that pulls us out of those situations? Well, it's God's grace. His grace pulls us out. So the Lord's rod and his staff, his his power and his grace comfort the believer, even in the darkest of valleys. And here's why. Because the good shepherd's rod and staff are not for our harm, but for our good. Now, most Christians, you know, they kind of understand the promise of Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But the idea that even our dark valleys are for our good and for his glory... Yeah, the awesome thing about God is in his sovereignty, he takes even the pitiful, ugly, painful stuff in life and he can turn it into something beautiful. God doesn't cause everything that happens to you to happen. Sometimes he allows things to happen. But the things that he either causes or allows, he does so in such a way that he can still assign redemptive purposes to him. And he can make us more like Jesus in the process. You see, Romans 8, 29 says that uh, those he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So all that stuff in verse 28 that works for our good, we see in verse 29, the ultimate good is us becoming more like Jesus. And when we become more like Jesus, what happens? God gets glorified. Now, that's a tough lesson for us to embrace. The fact that God still uses the bad stuff for our good and even more for for his glory. Hmm, yeah. But you see, that's the ultimate motivation for him. His glory. And think about it. Is there really anybody else who's truly deserving of glory? I mean, if anybody's deserving of glory, it's God. God. So why is he leading me in the paths of righteousness, as David said? For his name's sake. Verse 3 says, for his name's sake. That is God's ultimate motivation, For, for his guidance, his name's sake. All that he does is for our good and for his glory. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. Understand this, church. We are not the center of the Lord's universe. And that reality ought to to keep us from getting puffed up with pride. He created us for his glory. He redeems people for his glory. So much of our culture is about exalting humanity. You see, the gospel, that's all about exalting God the right paths for his name's sake. All right, so, so far, we've seen the provision of the good shepherd. We've seen the prompting of the good shepherd. Now, I want you to notice the pursuit of the good shepherd. Look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. We get a couple of different pictures here in verses five and six. First of all, we get a picture of David's sanctuary. I want you to note the hospitality that God demonstrates toward David. You prepare a table before me. Now, in Israel's culture, you know, they valued hospitality. And so part of being a gracious host was preparing for and feeding a guest now as i read those verses there those words in verse five i kind of get this visual picture of thanksgiving at granny's house when i was a kid in, in rush springs oklahoma and on her table lay all of the annual favorites that you salivated for there was the turkey and the dressing and all of the trimmings that went with that and at the dessert table all of the sweet-to-eat treats that tantalized your taste buds. Uh, coconut cream pie, granny's epic chocolate cake. Let me tell you, that chocolate cake, they should write sonnets about it. But I think there was probably so much sugar in the frosting that it was just a little slice of diabetes on a plate, but uh, <laughs> it was so good. And you were surrounded by warmth and laughter and, and loved ones. But what's unique about the Lord's preparation in this passage? It actually came in the midst of trouble. David wasn't hanging out with relatives at Granny's house. The Lord prepared a table in the presence of his enemies. In fact, that's one of the reasons why scholars think that David wrote this Psalm during the time of uh, his son Absalom's uprising against his father. But see, even even while oppressed, with enemies all around, David experienced joy. And that joy was symbolized by his head being anointed with oil. That's a symbol of sanctification. And he experienced contentment. Contentment seen here as a cup that was overflowing. See, his enemies may have wanted to do harm to him, But he was enjoying a good, bountiful meal in the presence of the Good Shepherd, prepared by the Good Shepherd. Oh, but stick this in your oven and bake it for just a minute. Where's the joy? Where's the contentment? Where's the the rest? Where's the peace? Where's the security without the Good Shepherd? I mean, think about what Psalm 23 would look like if the good shepherd were removed from the text. Verse 1, I don't have what I need. Verse 3, my life is not renewed. I don't walk the right paths. Verse 4, there is no comfort. I will fear the danger of the darkest valley. Verse 5, no security in the presence of my enemies. Verse 6, all the days of my life, I will dwell with me. Fortunately, David had the good shepherd. And so David had sanctuary. But there's another picture I want you to see. I want you to see David's certainty. David was confident that only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. Now, we've talked about that word for uh, faithful love uh, in several of the installments in this sermon series. That word is chesed. It often means covenant loyalty. God's faithfulness to his promises will not just follow David, but will pursue him. In fact, in the the Hebrew, the verb there uh, for pursue, it's it's frequently used uh, to describe the pursuit of an enemy. Of course, the psalmist's enemies are no longer pursuing him. David is now being pursued by God's goodness and his faithful love. And this pursuit, it's not just going to continue for a few hours or maybe a couple of days, you know, a month or so, but for a lifetime. See, one of the reasons David knew that he could count on God's faithfulness and his goodness Daily for a lifetime was well because David had already recognized God's goodness and faithful love in the past, and God choosing him to be king, in uh, empowering David to defeat Goliath, in his friendship with Jonathan, in protecting him from the murderous King Saul. But you know, maybe. There had been no greater evidence of God's goodness and faithful love in David's life than in God choosing to forgive David of his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. I mean, think about it. To pardon David of such heinous sins was an undeserved act of God's love that surely reverberated throughout the rest of David's life. God's pardon had been sweet, and because of it, David was able to experience a renewal of his fellowship with God. Church, King David's life is proof to us, and that there's no sin so small that God's goodness and faithful love aren't necessary, but there's also no sin so great that God's faithful love and goodness can't it. And you and I would do well to remember that. Goodness and faithful love pursued David in the then and there, and goodness and faithful love will pursue us in the here and now. Now, how can that be? Because the greater David, the greater shepherd followed God the Father's plan, even to the point of death. Death on a cross, it says in Philippians 2. See, the first David took a life to cover his sin. The second David gave his life to cover our sins and to shepherd us in the right paths on the way to his eternal home. Those words that we read from Winston Churchill earlier, spoken during World War II, they brought comfort and encouragement and hope to his people. But you know what? It wasn't a sure hope. But for you and I, We can have a sure hope. We can have peace and rest. In in case, if it's not already clear to you who the Good Shepherd of Psalm 23 is, Jesus identifies himself as such. John chapter 10, he says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's Jesus, he's the one who offers us provision, and guidance and love. It was Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who provided salvation for us by sacrificing himself in our place. And when we come to embrace that knowledge, well, then we can read this psalm with the sure hope that that, yes, like David, we will dwell with God forever. The Lord is my shepherd. Not was, but is. Right now, continually, the same God who hung the stars, who poured the oceans, who raised the mountains. The master planner of this vast universe is also the architect of our lives. The God who knew you even before you were formed in your mother's womb, as Jeremiah says. That God is your shepherd. And he knows you by name. Folks, that's the the purest, sweetest form of intimacy with God. Uh, A few verses later in John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. That's John 10 27 and 28. The Lord is yours and you are his. But I want you to note that verse 3 says, He leads me along the right paths. What happens when we abandon those paths? Do you know a shepherd will go to extraordinary lengths to find and to restore a wayward sheep, even to the point of breaking that sheep's leg? Now, he'll set the bone, and and as as that sheep is healing, he'll keep that sheep very close to him. And what happens is during the healing process, that sheep develops a much more dependent, even intimate relationship with its shepherd. Well, likewise, when you and I stray from the paths of righteousness, our Good Shepherd is going to go to any length, even painful lengths, to restore us to the paths of right fellowship and righteousness, a place where we're going to find fullness of joy, a place where we're going to find rest. Christian, you know, maybe today... You just need to make a course correction. He's your shepherd, but for whatever reason, you haven't allowed him to be your guide. Isaiah chapter 53, verse six says, it "'All we like sheep have gone astray. "'We have turned everyone to his own way, "'and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all.'" That's right. The good shepherd paid the price for our rebellion so that we might have peace with God, so that we might be able to rest in him. But here's the $64,000 question. Is he truly your shepherd today? I mean, have you made that conscious commitment to say yes to him for forgiveness, salvation, eternal life? And, and, And if not, why put it off any longer? Folks, if you've never come to that point in life when you've admitted to him that you're a sinner and need a forgiveness and salvation, I invite you to do that today. Why do you need to do that? It's very simple, because we can't save ourselves. Bible makes it very clear that none of us could ever be good enough to enter into God's holiness. See, salvation and eternal life have nothing to do with what we can do. It's all about what Jesus has already done for us. So, are you ready to accept that gift of eternal life? Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.